Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Jocelyn Viterna, Professor of Sociology and Director of Undergraduate Studies at Harvard University. Jocelyn introduces her approach to teaching sociological theory in a way that is honest about our intellectual roots and engages with the centrality of social evolutionary thought and racist ideology in early disciplinary writings. As example, Jocelyn discusses the work of Herbert Spencer and also guides us through a 1909 publication from Frank Wilson Blackmore, the ninth president of the American Sociological Society. Hi, Jocelyn. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. One of the conversations that's happening in the discipline right now is how to teach theory, and perhaps just as importantly, who should be included when you are teaching theory. And I tend to think of theory as that thing that holds a discipline together, right? We can research so many different things. We have so many different subfields. But the theory and the way we view the world, that's something we should all be able to converse with each other about. So, and again, I have some bias about this, but I would say that this debate over the story we tell about sociological theory is really one of the most foundational ones for the discipline. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today. And it's it's really, I'm just hoping you could talk a little bit about your critique of the common way that we teach theory. So that's, you know, the classic, here's Marx, here's Weber, here's Durkheim, talk a little bit about uh, how industrialization was this important moment. And then maybe we include a few other people. Um, But I want to hear about your critique, and then we can work through how you actually go about teaching the class. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, And I should also note from the beginning that uh, I've had been working on this with a group of graduate students at Harvard University, and so a lot of the ideas I'm talking about today were developed in conjunction with them, particularly Hannah Katz and Derek Roby, so I want to shout out to them as well. Um, But the critique that we've been building from is not new to theorists in sociology. Um, I think uh, we're certainly not the first to note that most books on classical sociological theory talk about Marx, Weber, and Durkheim as the founders of sociological thought, uh, that they are examples of the way great theory should be done. And the story, the origin story typically goes something along the lines of uh, there was this industrial revolution in Europe. It launched a series of social changes that caused these thinkers to realize for the first time how social forces exist and they affect individual lives. And they started writing about how these issues like culture and class and organizations and power shape our lives and they launched sociology. And although this origin story is widely taught, uh, we have a lot of evidence now that shows that it's factual incorrect, right? Uh, If you go back and you look at what was being taught in sociology programs around the turn of the century in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, if you uh, look at what was being published in AJS, which started in 1895, um, if you look at what was being taught in sociology textbooks at the time, it was not a focus on the Industrial Revolution. It was not a heavy focus on Marx or Weber uh, or Durkheim. Durkheim was a little more uh, in the mix than most. And really what you see is a focus on colonialism, on race, on gender, and on something called social evolution. And the people being taught were largely sort of building from notions of Herbert Spencer but we were reading a lot of W.I. Thomas. We were reading Albion Small. We were reading E.B. Brighter. Um, we were reading F.W. Blackmar, some early founders of the sociology, uh, the American Sociological Association at the time, uh, and even Francis Galton, some of the big eugenicists at the time were being published. And so what we're told was early sociology really came from 
what Parsons told us was early sociology in the 1930s, but not what was actually being read and taught and discussed at a foundational moment of the institutionalization of the discipline in the United States. It's such an ironic thing to hear because as a discipline, we take pride in our connection to actual data, right? We're supposed to always build our theories from evidence. And yet here there's very clear case, the story that we're being told doesn't match up with reality. And it wasn't like it took a huge amount of digging for you to find this. This is right there for anyone to discover if they want to do just a little bit of work. Absolutely. These, uh, if you just go look at the early AJS articles, uh, uh, because they're so early, many of them are actually freely available online. You don't even need your access to JSTOR or something. So it's it's quite easy to see that this is there. Um, I should also note a couple of my graduate students went back and looked at syllabi uh, being taught at Harvard University, and overwhelmingly students were reading Spencer and Peretti. They were not reading uh, Durkheim and Weber at these moments. So so there is a lot of evidence that this is true. And I'm guilty of, of producing this story also when I teach my theory class. It's about Durkheim. It's about Weber. Even if I push beyond them and try to include critiques and more contemporary readings, I still start the story off by saying these are the people that started the discipline. This is what everyone accepted at the time, which is not true. So I need to fix that. Well, and I think there are really good reasons to do that. Yeah, I mean, we're sociologists, we understand this. But for one thing, there was, I think there were two sort of moments of institutionalization of sociology. One was sort of at the late 1800s and the others was in the 1930s in the United States when Parsons was really trying to reinvigorate sociology as something that was useful for society. And so he really told us to look at Weber and Durkheim at the time. Marx came in more in the 70s. And a lot of sociology since then has been based on these ideas, right? And there's also this notion that uh, if you're in the field, you should be able to talk about Weber and Durkheim. And certainly there's even an institutional component in that if that's what we were taught in theory, then that's what we feel comfortable teaching and moving it on. And so, so it is part of what makes us a discipline. It is part of that common story that allows us to be part of the same club and to talk to each other. But it's not an accurate understanding of the foundations of the discipline. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about some of those themes that you do find when going through this early sociological writing? Because this this history really has been erased. We don't teach Spencer in the classroom anymore. We don't we don't talk about social evolution as a key sociological principle. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just explain the type of stuff you actually do find when you get into that work. Absolutely. So I think to your point, many sociologists have realized that we're not teaching an accurate history. And there's been a real push to bring back in lost voices like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Monroe Work, Anna Julie Cooper, Harriet Martineau, and Jane Addams. And I fully support that. But I think it's interesting that we're not bringing back in the people who were in the classroom, like Spencer and Small and Thomas and the likes, right? And I think in part, that's because we strongly disagree with what they were teaching. But I think there's also value to talking about what they were teaching at the time. Um, because there's a lot of through lines from those early sociologists to what we do today. So in in nutshell, Herbert Spencer, he was a very well-known intellectual of his time. He was sort of the self-made intellectual who actually made money from, from his writings. He sold more than a million copies of his books during his lifetime, which was pretty unheard of in the late 1800s, right? Uh, but Spencer had a notion that he talked about evolution um, and social evolution. He actually started writing about this about 10 years before Darwin wrote about his notions of biological evolution. That's pretty incredible. Sorry to interrupt, but that's... Yeah. I mean, the, the common story is that we had this idea 
of evolution from Darwin and then sociology picked it up, right? So that, that's that's really fascinating that, again, the reality doesn't match the data. Absolutely. And I've even said that he's taken Darwin's ideas and applied them but because I've read that. But uh, in digging a little deeper, he, he was writing about this a good 10 years before uh, Darwin's uh, famous works came out. And in evolution, a lot of people were talking about evolution at that time. A lot of scholars were. So the fundamental notion of Spencer, I mean, he wrote about everything from astronomy to physics, to religion, but, but the fundamental notion that he had was that all phenomena, all organisms started with sort of an incoherent, but very homogenous mass of some sort. And then as it evolved over time, it became more coherent and more heterogeneous. And so uh, you could apply this to the physical body, you could apply this to species, you could apply this to stars, but he applied it when he was talking to sociologists in terms of how we think about the development of societies. And so he would talk, for example, about how more primitive societies just have little goat trails for roads, but then as societies advance, because they have greater needs, those greater needs lead to the development of greater systems of transportation. And so you might develop better roads and shipping lines and these types of things. And so that was how he saw everything moving from sort of simpler homogenous notions to more heterogeneous, but ultimately more utilitarian developments. And so on the one hand, he was basically wrong. Like, let's just say from the beginning that his evidence was very problematic. He did this sort of a priori analyses where he would start with something he saw and take it as a truth. And then he would sort of try to deduce what were the processes that led, you know, the, the historical processes to led to that differentiation. So he would start out by saying, you know, the roads in Africa, for example, were more like the goat trails, so the roads in Latin America. But here in Europe, we have these more extensive systems. And so that shows that we're at a higher stage of evolution or a higher stage of development. And so I think it's worth starting from the beginning to say that that's, you know, in many ways, just historically inaccurate, right? If we look at the cities like Tenochtitlan from the Aztec Empire, they had way better roads at the same time than Europe did at, at, at similar time periods, right? They had terracotta systems of canals that took the waste out of the city and these types of things that certainly they didn't have in Europe. Um, and we can look in Africa and find similar kinds of things, you know, and you know, Timbuktu had a huge university system at this time. Um, by 300 AD in Aksum, in the present-day Ethiopia, they had, you know, extensive commerce and manufacturing of glass and crystal and brass and these types of things. So his view of the world was incorrect. I just think that's useful for a starting point. But he was able to develop these ideas because colonization was happening at the time. And that colonization not only made possible the Industrial Revolution, but it also made possible for thinkers like Spencer and Durkheim and others to imagine these primitive societies, right? To imagine this notion of evolution. So it, I think it's very important to keep the context in there. So there were many problematic aspects of the way he talked about evolution. And largely he was racist, right? Like he would talk about barbaric civilizations or the primitive peoples, these types of things, when he talked about anyone who was not European and white. But there was a weird sort of twist to his racism that was different from the time in that he also advocated for the fact that everybody was evolving and that all human societies would eventually reach this sort of pinnacle that he imagined. He actually imagined a pinnacle where the state would sort of wither away because we had all become such evolved human beings, right? So people actually took issue with his notion that, for example, black people would someday be equivalent to white people. So he was definitely racist, but there was a different kind of bent to his racism at the time. 
Yeah, and I think it's also so important that it's not simply this case of, you know, he used the language that we would deem incorrect now, but this is actually central and foundational to the way he theorized the world. This was, Absolutely. It wasn't this incidental thing, and you could remove the language and remove the racism and sexism, and here's his idea that we could still use, but rather, this is what he was trying to explain. Absolutely. And this was central to so much of sociology at the time, because even people who didn't agree with his notions of how to deal with the world, they still sort of the the notion of evolution was fundamental to how he thought of the world. Um, And certainly if we look, you know, at Comte or Durkheim or others, we see that this was pretty common throughout. Right. So when you look at the debates in these early sociological articles, you have on the one hand sort of social reformers coming back against Spencer and saying, well, They also agreed with notions of evolution, of social evolution, but whereas Spencer thought the best way to help people evolve was to have minimal intervention by the government because he thought that individuals had to suffer the consequences of their bad decisions or their bad actions and that that was how individuals learned and societies learned and societies evolved. So Spencer was a very hands-off sort of laissez-faire understanding of government that was very laissez-faire. Uh, a lot of the early sociologists in AJS pushed back against that with more of a social reform issue. And they felt that uh, states and indeed societies and charities and sociologists had a role in promoting evolution. And so they would push for more sorts of charitable organizations, uh, increasing education to what they called the, quote, Negro population, uh, even advocating for you know, more education for women and these types of things. Interestingly, Spencer was actually considered radical in his time because he thought women should have the same rights as men, but he didn't want to do anything to sort of help women get that education at the time, right? That was what more of the social reformists were doing. So there was this debate between sort of the Spencerian laissez-faire notion with the social reformers about the best way to help societies progress, the best way to sort of push forward evolution. There was also a debate between the Spencerians and people like uh, Francis Galton. So Galton was a famous eugenicist, and even though he wasn't a sociologist, he was published in the American Journal of Sociology, both in 1904 and in 1905, with a lead article. And uh, you see a lot of overlap with his ideas from Spencer. They both thought that sort of characteristics like industriousness, your intelligence, uh, your education, these types of learned behaviors, they thought they could be inherited. But Galton was very explicit that states should take a very direct route encouraging childbearing among the elite who he considered the best. So white upper middle class individuals should have more children and we should take steps to ensure that the low class, who he saw as less evolved, uh, should have fewer children. So this was a real basis towards state interventions to force sterilizations and the like. So there were huge debates going on at this time, but they all sort of centered around, uh, they all accepted this notion of evolution, but the debates were about how to achieve that, the best evolutionary outcome. So you also shared with me an article that provides an example of the same type of logic and ideas from early sociology, which was by F.W. Blackmore. And that was also published in the American Journal of Sociology, um, which is the same place that you were just referencing the article from Galton. And I think for if anyone's listening who is not aware, it's one of the two flagship journals for the discipline. So this isn't some sort of fringe space where these ideas were published. It's really the core of the discipline. So I'm curious, what do you tell the students before you share 
an article like uh, like the one that we're going to go through by <laughs> F.W. Blackmore to set up, you know, to set up their engagement with it. And I'm curious what their reaction is, even before they read the text. When you say, here, we're going to go back to 1909, read this article, and here's what you're going to find. Or do you just send them in blind? Uh, no, we talk about it a lot from the beginning. And then we have a lot of discussions, first of all, about why if this early mainstream sociology is so bad and so problematic, why do we read it? And then we talk about how to read it and how to engage with each other in the classroom about it. So I'm not sure, is there one way of those you want to go first or dig into the article or... Let's let's get into the article, and then I want to perhaps conclude with that question, which I think is so important. Why do we still engage with this stuff? And I know I've had students say that about pretty much any article we read, um, but this this is a particularly extreme case that we can think about. So absolutely, what's the value of doing this? Let's get into the text more because I think that will be worth having that to be able to refer to when we have the final part of the conversation. Wonderful, yeah. And so I, you know, like I said, I went down this rabbit hole of reading all of these early sociological works, and there's so many that you could bring in. But ultimately, I decided to have the students read this uh, review. So this is F. W. Blackmar, who was an early president of the American Sociological Society, reviewing a book by Alfred Holt Stone, who was more of an independent scholar than a, a sociologist. Um, but the book was called Studies in the American Race Problem. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that whereas race studies has been kind of sidelined as a subfield of sociology right now, it's very clear when you read these early works that race uh, was central to the field of sociology, uh, even by the people we would very much consider racist today. Right. And I like this because it's only a couple of pages. It's only four pages long. So you students don't have to read a lot of really offensive materials to get the point. But it also talks about how Mr. Stone, who wrote this book, uh, presented a lot of papers that became the book at various universities, right? So he talked at Cornell, he talked at Michigan, he talked at Harvard, he talked at the American Economic Association meetings. And so it just shows, I think, how well-established this authorship is, right? Um, Blackmar goes on and says that he really uh, admires the book because it was earnest and fair and seeking presenting the truth. Uh, so he, he seems to agree very much with the article. And the book and Stone overall basically argue that he offers more or less a defense of slavery as an important uh, way of supporting the evolution of, again, quote, the Negro community, the Negro peoples, the Negro race, um, because he presented them as sort of childlike individuals who needed that support and needed to learn how to work hard and to have someone else clothe them and feed them. And so he presented the South as a very sort of benevolent society who would help take care and had long helped take care of the Negro race, again, in quotes, through slavery. So when Blackmar is summarizing the book, he says, the whole book impresses the reader of the manifold difficulties of the race problem, and it gives a clear statement of the difficulties without giving any formulas for their solution. The inference is that intelligence, study, toleration, and time are the elements of their solution, that economically, socially, and politically, the Negro is in a bad way, with an unpromising future, judged from the standards set by his optimistic friends, and that owing to his ignorance, superstition, indolence, childish nature, and racial characteristics, he is his own worst enemy, and that justice and patience must be exercised toward him by the North and the South. And moreover, that the people of the South are the ones who are the best situated to understand the Negro and his problem, and can and will do more for him in a practical way than theorists who live at a distance. It is a national burden which the whole nation must sympathetically bear, but the people of the South represent the direct remedial agent. Uh, so I think that really shows the way 
that the Black community was discussed during this time period. And sort of this very paternalistic tone in which scholars talked about as they talked about helping the evolution of this entire group of people that they called a different race. This really shows the importance of what you mentioned earlier. Um, And I'm just thinking about how in the reclaiming of W.E.B. Du Bois as a foundational figure in sociology, one of the key parts of the argument is, look, Du Bois was writing about race as this core concept within the discipline, and he was doing it at the same time as those other people that we consider the founders of the discipline. So why is it that we have him at the end of the theory textbook? Or why is it that we treat him as this bridge between classic and contemporary theory or, or, or classic and contemporary sociology? But part of that argument is the assumption that other sociologists were not writing about race at the time. But here, what you're pointing out is that, yeah, there were other sociologists writing about race. It was actually a really central uh, you know, concept of, of debate and discussion. It was just that they were doing it in a way uh, that we do not want to be part of the discipline. No, exactly. And, and I think that actually makes what Du Bois was doing more impressive, not less impressive, right? Because he's writing about race and he's doing it exactly. against these people. So when we talk about why... You know, when students say, why do you make us read this horrific stuff? I think there's a couple of things that we always try to do. One is we make clear that everybody understands that this is not good sociology. This notion of sort of, uh, I have them read a couple of excerpts from a W.I. Thomas article, for example, that uh, starts out talking about how women are naturally predisposed to like housework and how do we understand how they evolved to be that way, right? And so they take it's very unsociological in that they take what they see as a natural thing rather than a socially constructed situation. So we talk a lot about why it's bad theory and why it's bad data and why there are a lot of biases in this to start with. But then we also talk about why it's important to read these individuals. And I think at a very basic level, it's just very important to own our roots and to understand that although we see sociology as sort of a progressive discipline. And uh, these early sociologists also saw themselves as very progressive. They were pursuing science instead of religion, and they were trying to help the ignorant. And again, this is all in quotes, the superstitious, the childish, the sex-craved Negro population of the time, as they would prefer it, or the savages, the barbaric races that they talked about. They, they saw themselves as uplifting these individuals in a very progressive way. So I think it's just important to own that and to be aware that that is something that has shaped the discipline for a long time. I also think it's important because even though Parsons came on and he, one of his famous lines is that Spencer is dead and he tried to move sociology away from thinking about Spencer, you can see from Parsons and everything that came beyond that, and even the people he chose to look at, like Weber and Durkheim, that this evolutionary notion is still very prominent in what we study in terms of our history of sociology. And it's been an important through line to where we are today. And I think even just thinking about sort of welfare debates in the United States, the way that people spot censor is very similar to today. And that some people would argue that we shouldn't have a welfare system. People should have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And others would say, you know, oh, we need these welfare programs, but we need a welfare to work program really promotes industriousness, right? You can see real elements of through lines from what happened in the past to the way we still think about sociology today. And what we know about sociology and what we know about any discipline is that everybody who writes an article is often responding to the ideas that came before them. And so there are these through lines that I think we can't fully appreciate if we don't understand what 
these early sort of mainstream sociologists were writing. And then another reason, like you said, is I think it's important. I don't think we do justice to Du Bois. I don't think we do justice to Anna Julia Cooper. I don't think we do justice to Harriet Martineau if we don't also put them in the context of the time. Because their use of data, their use of logic, their field methods, their theories, and their pushing back against these ideas was so far advanced that you can't really appreciate their brilliance as well as their bravery of writing their ideas in this very difficult time period and what they were responding to. So I think you appreciate them more if you understand better what they were responding to. And then I think the other thing you said is just understanding that with this sort of rebranding of sociology that Parsons did, Parsons was trying to make sociology very useful. He was trying to focus it on how can sociology help the government develop a better society kind of thing. And so he wanted to focus in uh, on sort of the within the United States notions of industrialization and modernization. So he kind of threw out a lot of the colonization aspects, but he also threw out a lot of these discussions about race and gender and sexuality and some of the things that were actually really central to sociology from the beginning. Um, so understanding that I think we have to understand not only the through lines of how these early mainstream sociologists still affect what we learn and understand today, but also the other possibilities, like what could have happened if we had paid more attention to Du Bois and Harriet Martineau uh, at the time. There's a way, and this is a really tentative argument that I haven't <laughs> haven't really thought through, but I was thinking there's a way that bringing this history back in also undercuts some of the key ideas that we hold on to because we realize their origins. And in particular, I'm thinking about this sense of progress that still our discipline holds on to, this idea of progress in terms of race, progress in terms of gender, progress in terms of whatever we want to think about society improving. And so, but a lot of those origins go back to this evolutionary approach. And even though we got rid of that stuff, and we kind of erase that memory, we still hold on to that principle. And I find that sometimes that gets in the way of really good scholarship. Yes. And I think that is one of those benefits that comes from reclaiming our roots, right? Even the really ugly roots. And I don't, again, I want to be clear that most of this early sociology is very bad sociology. But understanding that sort of uh, the passion that people came to sociology with for making the world a better place, I think is still actually something that exists today. And we have a lot of debates still within the discipline now about why we study society. And I think the notion is that we study society with the hopes that by diagnosing where some of the, the social problems are, that we can hopefully create a more just society, right? And whether that's the scholars, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate on how policy relevant you need to be and whether sociologists should be more active versus just diagnose the problem and the policymakers can fix it. All those debates are still out there, but there is this underlying notion of evolution that I don't think we've lost in sociology. And I think we probably need to have a little more serious conversation with ourselves and with each other about that. That would be a perfect point to end our conversation. However, I really, I really need to ask, how have students responded to this? Because as much as this is an important uh, kind of more abstract idea about the nature of our discipline, this really is about how does it play out in the classroom? So what has your experience been? Students have really responded very positively. They still don't love reading the Marx Faber Durkheim, but I think uh, theory can sometimes be dry. And when you put theory in its context and you uh, put people in conversation with each other and, and the, the conflicts that were raging and uh, the wars that were raging right at the time, it makes it a lot more alive and 
I think it also helps students understand how theory can be constitutive of, right? Not just descriptive of the social world, but constitutive of the social world. And I think students start to understand better the power and the responsibility of theorizing about society and the consequences that it can have, both as you look backwards and as you look forwards. Well, this was a great conversation. You've inspired me to shift how I discussed the, the early years of the discipline. So thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I very much appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.